You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, April 13th, 2016, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hello, folks. Hola. How are you all this evening? Fantastically well, my friend. Faring pretty good. Pretty well. So my daughter told me a story tonight about uh, a run-in she had with a substitute teacher. Oh, my God. Is she okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is not the first time she's had a run-in with a wackadoodle substitute teacher at her school. But previously, she ran into a teacher who was explaining to the class how 9-11 was an inside job. Oh, no. And how the government <gasps> killed those kids at Sandy Hook. Oh, no. <laughs> and how evolution is a lie. Oh, my God. What the hell did she say? The, that, was an, that was an email to the principal. Yeah. I, would, uh, I would soap a tax on her chair. Yeah, this one, <laughs> she, she had a, a very polite debate about genetically modified organisms with, with this teacher. But it was funny because, you know, and I, and I talk somewhat to my daughters about stuff like this, but not a lot. So I didn't like know how much she knew, but she did a, a pretty good job. She was explaining how like everything is genetic, been genetically modified one way or another, whether it's hybrids or whatever. So the teacher was saying hybrid. that, yeah, but if I eat food that doesn't spoil, that means bacteria can't break it down, and therefore the bacteria in my gut can't break it down. So Julia said, that's interesting, because I wasn't aware that there was any genetically modified food that doesn't spoil. Can you tell me what you're talking about? Which genetically modified food doesn't spoil? And she said, well, Twinkies will never spoil. Uh, Okay, Okay, it's not a genetically modified food, but... (laughs) And Twinkies do spoil, don't they? Of course they do, but... (laughs) Honey doesn't spoil. I know. She said that honey doesn't spoil. That's... You you wouldn't need honey. Non-GMO. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it went down... It went downhill from there, but that was... uh, It It went downhill, meaning she made some good points... She made some cognitive dissonance happen in the teacher's mind. The teacher just dug her heels in. Her, her yeah, yeah, exploded. yeah. She just yeah. Sure. just non sequitur is what it sounds like. So she said at some point, well, well Splenda causes cancer. Well, no, it doesn't. No, but, no. Oh, uh, my God. Oh, then, the, the again, here's the, the pinnacle when she really pushed, you know, all Julie was doing is saying, what's the evidence for that? Why are you saying that? You know, and she just would come back with irrelevant off-topic responses, including – well, companies are just trying to make people sick so they could make money off of treating them later. There you go. <gasps> Sounds there like you Bill. Go. There you yeah, go. So really, it's so terrible. so, and, and she said, "Well, these are different companies. You know, the agricultural companies are not the same, are not pharmaceutical companies." And she said, "Well, they're all connected. They're all actually uh, run course, by the same people." Yeah, mm-hmm. and then she trotted out the whole "they have a cure for cancer already" mm-hmm. trope. Mm-hmm. So this is a teacher. This th- is a teacher. This is a yeah. school teacher. That is frightening. Yeah, this per- she wow. needs a restraining order of some sort. The so only way near I would accept that story is if they prove the force existed and the people behind the scenes were all Sith lords. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> if it's not Sith lords, it's all bullshit. <laughs> right. Darth Plagueis. All right, Kara, we have an interesting word this week. Tell us what it is. The word this week was actually recommended by somebody named Siggy from Philadelphia, and it is homophily. Homophily. 
spelled H-O-M-O-P-H-I-L-Y. So what do we think, guys? Homophily. Uh, the same, similar. Same. The similarities Love. between different philosophical systems. Like it's similar. No, it's Liking a Spanish <laughs> breakfast yeah. pastry similar to waffles. <laughs> Oh, this is fun. It's like Balderdash. Uh, so <laughs> liking similar. Those are really the two roots there, yeah. right? Homo means the same and Philly or um, file means, you know, liking that. So this is a sociology theory more than anything that people tend to form connections with others who are similar to them in characteristics like socioeconomic status, values, beliefs, attitudes, birds even of a feather. Exactly. That birds of a feather yep. flock to- together. Now, I should say this is not to be confused with, but in many ways, it's highly related to another concept that's well established in the sciences, which is called assortative mating. Have you guys heard about this? No, Mm -mm. I have not. So so this is a type of sexual selection, and it screws up the Hardy-Weinberg principle. And the reason it does it is because in certain species, we actually see that organisms that have similar phenotypes or even similar genotypes, but usually that, that leads to a similar phenotype, actually tend to mate with each other more likely. So if they're similar in size, if they're similar in color, if they're similar in smell, whatever the case may be, they're more attracted to each other. They tend to mate more readily. It can lead to more inbreeding, but what it also does is it screws up the well-established Hardy-Weinberg principle, which is the um, the equation that you may have learned about in your intro biology class that helps you predict how many alleles or how many um, gene-carrying loci exist in a population so that you can then predict rates of disease, rates of certain features and things like that when we're talking about simple Mendelian genetics. Now, the Hardy-Weinberg equation says that a population is always in equilibrium except when it deviates using certain things like uh, mutation that can affect allele frequencies, migration does. If you live on an island, you see not humans living on islands, but to some extent, even humans, organisms living on islands tend to uh, get really big. You guys have seen island gigantism. And this is uh, island a specific- dwarfism. There's like also the- island dwarfism. Yeah, yeah that's, that's true. Right. Isn't that more common? Um, yeah, actually, both are happening. Large animals will tend to get smaller and small animals will tend to get larger. So that you have island gigantism and dwarfism. Things basically tend to move towards the center. Well, there you go. <laughs> They both happen. And so these these are things where the Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium that exists in nature is shifted because of non-randomness and how the genes are spread out. Because, of course, it's not random. All the calculations are based on it being random, but they're things that affect how random they are. And one of these really large things is non-random mating. Assortative mating is common in organisms. Scientists are still working to this day to try and understand kind of the how and the why of uh, this evolutionary quirk, because it doesn't always seem to end up positively. You know, you can actually see that genetic similarity is not very good for a lineage of an organism, yet we see it both in uh, animal, non-human animal species, and to some extent, we see homophily in humans. So kind of coming back to homophily, which is specifically geared towards uh, humans and also, uh, I guess, some organisms, it's less about mating and it's more about relating to one another. We can see that this is a phenomenon that underlies a lot of different quirks, like the tendency for 
uh, for us to be more attracted to individuals with similar faces, the tendency for us to be more attracted to similar, uh, to individuals with a similar ethnicity or who speak the same language or who have similar political or religious values as we do. And, um, yeah, it's a pretty interesting psychological or sociological phenomenon that I think has a lot of relation to some phenomena that we have measured pretty staunchly in biology. Homophily. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've read other reports looking Mm -hmm. at um, the fact that animals do also tend to mate with like their second cousins. Even even their first cousins is not uncommon. And there was, again, speculation about is this adaptive? Why is this happening? And the idea or one hypothesis is that it actually – does make it more likely for favorable genes to catch a hold, right? So if you have a favorable mutation and and you mate with your cousins, that solidifies that new favorable mutation in the population. Which makes sense, all things being equal, if the organiza- organization, if the organism is thriving. Yeah, right. It, it, when it really gets screwy is when you have some sort of, uh, situation in nature, whether it be a new predator introduced, whether it be a shift in the climate, you know, one of these natural pressures that really do affect evolution and they start to bottleneck that individual if they're only mating with, with this non-assortive, or I'm sorry, with this assortative, uh, in this assortative way and they're only mating with cousins and second cousins and then and there are no other examples of the species available, then you see all these terrible things. We see it in dog breeding yeah. all the time. We want a dog with a cute little smashed in face. We want a dog with a funny little long body. Oh, it happens to also have really bad joints. It happens to also be deaf. Right. Those are just things that come along with it. Yeah. Sure. All right, Bob, tell us about this new super metal foam that's going to change the world. <laughs> Um, <laughs> by which I mean we're going to all have our Iron Man armor. Oh, uh, I might change it just a, a little. Uh, material science, uh, one of my favorite sciences, it's amazing what, what's coming out. But they have it has produced another substance that has the potential to fill many different interesting roles that perhaps may have been unanticipated. Composite metal foams, or CMFs, have been shown hmm. now to not only block radiation, which we discussed, uh, I think a few months ago, it's also able to disintegrate armor piercing bullets. So you're saying we fire a bullet into it and the bullet will yes, it's dis- a, basically it, on it makes very good armor. So metal foam does sound kind of useless, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds like a permeable condom. I mean, what the use would a, a metal metallic foam be? But they are often, they are surprisingly strong and lightweight, two properties that, of course, will always be greatly sought after. And there's many different ways to create it. You could mill it, you could 3D print it. Uh, another another way that I, that I kind of prefer is you mix hollow metal beads within a matrix of another metal. So imagine... You have liquid aluminum and you just throw some of these hollow uh, steel beads in it and let it cool. And there you go. You end up with this kind of Swiss cheese metal, uh, all these little holes throughout it. And that's stronger Neat. than the solid metal, Bob? In, in, a, in a lot of ways. Uh, so, the, so the material's not new. They've actually been researching this for decades. Uh, but it seems from what I could tell, the potential for this, uh, this metal really came about, uh, in, in terms of people realizing it from Avsena, Rabei, uh, she's a professor of mechanical and aerospace engineering at North Carolina State. Uh, she has shown 
uh, in the past few years, uh, a lot of people just what see these CMFs can do. Now, her research the past couple of years have shown some of the really sweet potential applications for composite metal foams. For example, it could essentially be used as a lightweight radiation shielding. She showed that it can block X-rays, gamma rays, and neutron radiation. Now, that specific CMF uh, had uh, was a composite of tungsten spheres within a stainless steel matrix, and it even could block X-rays uh, better than most. Most materials, in fact, uh, except though it wasn't quite as good as lead. Lead is still the king for blocking hmm. X-rays and, uh, and well, block- Superman's vision, of course. Um, <laughs> cosmic rays? It, I think it would depend on how energetic the cosmic rays were. But, I mean, if it's blocking gamma rays, I mean, that's pretty intense. That's, that's, so yeah. uh, um, also earlier this year, she showed that metal foams are twice as good, twice as good at handling fire and heat than the metals that they're composed of. So a solid block of the, of a metal wouldn't be as good as a you know, a composite metal foam of the same metal. Um, so that of course would have tons and tons of different applications. Yeah. Well, that, as makes you can imagine. that makes sense. That makes sense because yes. air is an insulator. Yes, and metals are conductors. So mm-hmm. it's yeah, just pockets of air in there will keep the heat from from conducting. Right, and nice. and blocking the radiation kind of makes sense too if you think about it because you've got these you've got these uh, these holes throughout the metal that can disperse the radiation and increase the path its pathway through the metal, causing it to potentially uh, intersect with an actual atom or molecule uh, that could that could really block it and, and absorb it. So that kind of makes sense. So to- it's like refracting it? Yeah, my, my sense is it was, it was hard to find out exactly how it's dealing with, with the radiation, but a couple of commenters made some sense. They were describing it as kind of uh, scattering the light. The, because you've got to think about it. You're going through a metal, and then you've got this boundary shell uh, from a different, you know, made of a different metal. And then you also have the interior of the cavity. And I think those kind of boundary layers, I think, would be good at scattering it and sending it in different directions and increasing, the, greatly increasing the odds that it was going to hit something cool. that was going to totally absorb it. So now she's throwing armor-piercing bullets at it. Uh, her, <laughs> her experiment shot M2 projectiles at composite metal foam. But keep in mind, the foam had some help. Uh, there was a carbide ceramic layer on the front of the bulletproof vest. And there was also Kevlar plates on the back. So sure, those are very nice things to have in front and behind you. <laughs> but it was calculated that the foam itself absorbed 60 to 70% of the total kinetic energy. So it did hmm. the lion's share of the work in absorbing uh, the impact. Uh, now, it was only the vest that was tested was only 25 millimeters thick. So it wasn't very thick at all. And uh, they they looked at the indentations on the back of, on the back of the foam on the back of the vest, and it was only eight millimeters. So now, if you look at the guidelines for the National Institute of Justice, the NIJ, uh, they allow in their guidelines forty a forty four millimeter indentation, and these were only eight millimeters. So the CMF essentially got an A on you know an A on the test. Uh, it did very very well. And so, of course, in their research papers abstract, they kind of reiterate this. They say, due to its lightweight and high-impact energy absorption capabilities, composite metal foams have shown good potential for applications as ballistic armor. Yes, indeed, they certainly have. Uh, so for potential future applications, sure, there seems to be plenty. Next-gen military armor for soldiers, of course. We could also see it in many different types of vehicles. Uh, a couple of really interesting ones that you could use. It could be used in nuclear waste facilities, and it could also be used 
used to to ship nuclear waste since it's good at, at blocking radiation. So that that seems to be a no brainer. Um, another really good one, maybe the one I'm most excited about, is uh, using it in spacecraft designs. Of course, um, right? Yep. Get to Mars. Well, Don't, no problem. Uh, yeah, because one of the biggest impediments to long term manned space travel is having a lightweight radiation shield uh, to uh, to protect you from all the nasty cosmic and solar rays. Yeah, that's where I was going with my cosmic ray question. Right. Is that you know, can we use this to get to the planets? Well, it's not just for people though; it's also for equipment. Sure. Well, yeah. Like I was. I was just interviewing the scientists who are, you know, planning the Europa mission. And Europa happens to be in the middle of this like horrific radiation belt. And a huge part of their problem solving right now is just trying to figure out how to make sure that the instruments aren't fried. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. And yeah, but that's not just background cosmic radiation. That's dealing with the magnetic field of Jupiter, which does create mm-hmm. these, yeah, these zones of really intense radiation. Yeah, it does. Um, and then to top it all off, uh, these CMFs are non-toxic, which means that they can be uh, – that they're simple to manufacture and recycle. Uh, unless, of course, they've been used to absorb radiation, then I think recycling is going to be a little bit trickier. <laughs> right. uh, no. But still so, – so keep an eye on composite metal foams. They seem to have a bright future. Seems like they could just start manufacturing it right now, right? It's not like they have to – you is know, it expensive? It's not expensive, a, right? From what I could tell, they're simple to manufacture and, and recycle, uh, especially because they're not huh. toxic. So, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, how well could it scale up to huge, you know, huge levels? I don't know. You know, you know how this stuff goes. There could be some stumbling block that, that they, they're not really talking about at this point, but, uh, it certainly seems to have a future in front of it. Yeah. It often comes down to can you have a large scale manufacturing process, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, sure. The prototypes, whatever, may be fine, but can you, Build a factory that cranks this stuff out at a right. affordable price. It's always what it comes down to. All right. Here's an interesting story about uh, keeping a pig heart alive in a baboon. Did you guys hear about this one? Yeah, this one's great. Yeah, this is cool. So we've talked about this from different angles before, but this this is an interesting one. Uh, this is about transplanting hearts into people who have heart failure. Now, worldwide, about 3,500 heart transplants are performed each year, but – the need for hearts exceeds that. Uh, the the wait time on the list waiting for a, you know a heart to become available could be six months, a year, two years, or more. Obviously, people can die waiting on the list, you know, for a heart. And also, I think that people just never go on the list be, you know, waiting for a heart because they know that you're you're never going to get one. You're not, you're not a good enough candidate. You're not going to get high enough on the list to get one. Like we know that our friend uh, Mike Lassell needed a heart transplant basically and they, he never got on the transplant list because he was too high a risk to really ever be prioritized high enough on the list. In any case, donors are not keeping up with demand. So scientists are looking for options of how to, to replace the need for a human heart donor. One technology that they're working on is genetically modifying pig hearts so that they will not be rejected by human beings. And that's what this this story is about. So the uh, team of doctors from Germany and the United States have completed the next phase in their ongoing research program where they're using two techniques. They're essentially using hearts 
taken from pigs who have been genetically modified to express some human proteins, specifically alpha-1,3 galactosyltransferase gene knockout pigs, if you were wondering, which express human complement regulatory protein CD46 and human thrombomodulin. So, in other words, they produce some (laughs) human proteins as part of the immune system, and that's how we recognize what's self and not self, right? That's how our immune system decides to attack something as foreign, in this case, tissue rejection, right? Transplants are all about how good the match is. The better the match, the less the genetic uh, attack. Now, if you are transplanting from one species to another, that's called a xenograft. That's really tricky because now – you know, the proteins are really foreign. Baby with the baboon heart. The baby with the baboon heart. Yeah. So you guys remember that uh, baby Faye, right? Mm-hmm. This this was, you know, a while ago. This was in 1984. 80s, yeah. It got a lot of a lot of attention, a lot of protests. And it was really kind of about 30 years ahead of its time. Didn't work. It was only done as a bridging, you know, basically uh, a way of keeping the baby alive until a heart became available. But it didn't work. She rejected the heart and died, unfortunately. And that's what their scientists are still working on. Now it's, you know, 32 years later and, you know, the research is ongoing. So they're using a combination now of these uh, GM pig hearts and uh, some newfangled immunosuppressive therapy to like anti-rejection drugs, including monoclonal antibodies, right? So now you're making these antibodies that are attaching to and suppressing very specific parts of the immune system, the ones that are responsible for rejection. Now, with the combination of these two techniques, they were able to transplant one of these human pig hearts into a baboon, you know, a primate, you know, a close, you know, close enough sort of analog to a human just to get an idea of how it would work. And they broke their previous records in terms of keeping the heart alive in the recipient, in the baboon recipient. Uh, the the previous record was 500 days, uh, and now they were able to keep the heart alive for 945 days. That was the longest. The average was 200, or the median, I said, was 298 days. Uh, but the longest one survived for 945 days. Um, now, they didn't do a, re- a heart replacement. They kept, the baboons kept their normal heart, to keep them alive, they just wanted to see how long the donor heart would, itself would survive, and they did hook it up to blood supply. That's kind of the point. Where did they stick it in the body? Yeah, they just sort of stuck it in the in the chest and and attached blood vessels to it because it had to get blood uh, to, to oh get exposed man. to the immune system. <laughs> well, it's kind of weird. See Steve. those pictures? Yeah, <laughs> no, it's like- it just makes me wonder, like. You know, I feel like we have, and I could be wrong, but a body plan that is not perfect, but that definitely withstood millions of years of evolution. Is there room in there to just like shove another heart? Oh, in? yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I would say, I mean, they, I'd say absolutely just, yes. Just I, really I've had good. meals that were way bigger than the size of an organ. So <laughs> yes, it's like when they give you a kidney, they don't bother taking out the old kidneys. They just stick it in your in your abdomen somewhere. I didn't know that. Um, They're not like what disconnecting Wait, what? the old kidney and no, hooking it up to why? the same thing. But do they, if the old kidney is diseased, huh? why bother? Well, if they have to get cancers or something, yeah. sure. But they don't bother taking it out. <laughs> anyway, they want. They're just. Oh, they didn't they that. didn't want. They're only interested in just you know, how long would the heart survive without rejection. And they didn't want to give the baboons heart failure. You know what I mean? They didn't want that as a variable. However, that is the next step. You know, now they, the next step would be to do, actually do heart transplant on these baboons to see not only does the, how long does the heart survive, but how long does it function? 
And again, the, the idea here is not as a permanent solution, but if they could get it so that the heart survives and can function for a couple of years, then there's a lot of people who that would buy them enough time for a a donated heart to become available for them. A temp, a patch, a, a something to bridge the time. It's called until. a bridging technique. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. it's just to bridge them to their the more permanent solution, which is a a human heart transplant. But I will argue, Steve, that if they're yeah. going to give you a heart transplant, they have to put it where the heart is <laughs> because that's oh yeah, if, they, the if they're <laughs> absolutely if they are or on your sleeve, if they, yeah, if they're giving you a heart transplant, they take out. Your existing heart and they put in the new one where it, the old one is supposed to go, yes. For, if they want it to actually function because they got to hook it up to the aorta and the pulmonary vessels and everything. It has to go there. So is that the next step with the, that's the next step. pig yeah. research? Okay. Yep. That's the next step is to actually do a heart replacement, not mm-hmm. just a transplant to see if it, if it gets rejected or not. So this is interesting. You know, if it was still a long way away from this being a permanent solution, but we may be getting – Close, you know, the old five to ten years uh, be, before they said, you know, it's going to be, you know, ten years before they're putting these in people if all goes well. And then that research is going to take five to ten years at least. You know, if you if you want to see if people could survive for ten years with this transplant, it, that takes you ten years, you know, at least to, to figure that out. So, you know, the long term follow up is going to be is going to be critical. But even if you know, again, if even if people can survive for two to three years, that will again buy them more time to be on the donor list. So I do think this is probably our best hope of replacing human donor hearts is the genetically modified animal hearts like pigs who are already, you know, kind of similar to humans in size and the shape of their heart and the function of the heart. You don't think we'll be able to grow, like do lab-grown uh, human hearts before? I think that'll take, of that'll course. take longer. Take longer. We, that'll take longer, though, to develop that gotcha. technology. Yeah. Gotcha. So right now they're working on get, get, putting cells on a scaffolding, which yeah. is kind of a tricky... Yeah, yeah. And the other thing is like, you know, if you are transplanting a heart into a human, how old does that heart have to be? 10 years, 20 years before you basically have an adult heart, whereas pigs mature in two years. It's true. We would have to have GMO human hearts anyway. Like they would have to, obviously they're lab grown, but they would also have to probably have some gene promoter that has them grow way faster. Uh, Imagine those protesters. (laughs) Right. Or make them, you know, if we take your your own skin cells, for example, Mm -hmm. Then there's no issue with rejection. That would be the perfect transplant is we sure. grow your own heart. Yeah, yeah differentiating your cells into new heart cells. Yeah, that's the perfect option, but that takes time. Mm-hmm. Steve, that, that's, yeah. can we go back to the whole thing about when they put in like a new kidney that they don't hook it up? <laughs> like they don't cut out the old kidney and then that little stem that's there with no organ on it, they don't stitch that new organ into that little stem. No, they they hook things up obviously to it, but they don't bother taking out the old kidney. They just put it in the abdomen. That really upsets me. <laughs> Could I just request it's not it? natural? It just doesn't look right. Doesn't no, it's like not, a Jay request that right. his kidney be removed and put in a jar. Come on, you, guys! You gain weight after the surgery. You're heavier. Bob, <laughs> Bob, Evan, and Kara, you didn't know that's what they did, right? I, of course, I didn't, I didn't know I that. Didn't. No, I did not. No way. But it doesn't surprise me. I mean, look at all of the studies where like doctors have left tools in people's bodies. (laughs) Guys, the question is, it's all risk versus benefit. Why do it? It's more surgery unless there's a reason to do it. You shouldn't do it. The whole premise is the torso, though, as this... It's it's already kind of packed in there. Where do you? Where does there enough room for that? There's plenty of room. You just don't plenty of room. 
That's the misconception. Yeah, think about a pregnant woman. True. Yeah, Yeah, things just shift around. Yeah, but Kara, let's say that you get three or four kidney transplants. Then you've got like a whole batch of them, (laughs) a whole stash of them in there. (laughs) in the history? It's called a kidney array. (laughs) At one point, it comes out of your abdomen and it starts going, Quaid, the reactor. (laughs) Oh, God. I hate that. I hate that. So other options, very, very quickly, to xenografts, genetically modified xenografts, would be growing your own organs. That would be the best. Uh, but also mechanical. Um, yeah, artificial hearts. Sure. Yeah, so there are artificial hearts now. What's going on with them? You read about the Jarvik heart years ago. Steve, what's a, yeah. what's a pirate's favorite biology class? Oh, gosh, here we go. Know. The artificial heart. That's oh, not boy. a class. Shut up. <laughs> All right, at least I'm trying, Kara. All right, you- at least I'm sitting here trying. It's true. It's true. Try harder. Props. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the, the but they are also just a bridge. Like they'll work for like a year, you know, or maybe two, and they're they're not perfect. So the, yeah, it's been you know building. You would think, God, it's just a pump. What's the, what's the problem? But it really is. It really is hard to build a mechanical heart because, um, in addition, to, remember, it's got to work flawlessly. For years, we have to build mm-hmm. a machine with no hiccups for years, and it's got to be powered by something, and it has to pump blood without destroying blood cells, and it's tricky to accomplish all of those things. You know, it's just not—it's not easy. You know, it's—I it's, guess it's hard to duplicate. You know, millions of years of evolution in, in a machine like that. You think about how many times your heart beats in your lifetime, mm-hmm. and it. Never can't stop for even a minute. You know what I mean? It can't. Yeah. Yeah. We have like homeostasis, which really helps us, right? We have all of these regulatory things happening in our body, but your car, like you have to take it in for tune ups. Do the same thing with these, with these body machines, these cyborg machines. Tissue is self repairing. Mm -hmm. It's, it's homeostatic, as you say. But, you know, when you transplant a heart, a heart, it's also denervated, right? You know, so your heart doesn't have all the normal nerve supply. Um, it do, but it does. It will still respond to hormonal, to humoral signals, just not to oh. to nerves because the nerves <laughs> don't get reattached. You know, hmm. uh, humoral but, signals. I like it. Yeah. Oh, like the humor theory of disease. Hmm. Evan, Evan, should should we hide from aliens? Or are we very scary? <laughs> yeah, it's very scary. Under the covers, in a closet, behind the coats. You can. Uh, Well, according to a recent BBC News headline, it read, (laughs) lasers could cloak the Earth from aliens. Two U.S.-based astronomers, David Kipping and Alex Tichy from Columbia University, these astronomers conducted a thought experiment, the results of which were recently published in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical a society, uh, astronomical society, <laughs> I should say. The Royal Astronomical Society. Uh, their thought experiment asks the following. If aliens were to use the transit method to discover the Earth, and as a reminder, the transit method is a way astronomers are able to detect exoplanets by measuring the light output of a star and then looking for a subtle but clear dip in that output, which results from a planet passing in front of the star. So that's the transit method. What would it take for humans to disguise the Earth against aliens who might be using the transit method to find us? <laughs> well, Kipping and Tichi suggest that we should shine lasers into space from the surface of the Earth if we want to hide our presence from aliens. God, that's ridiculous. The beams could... It's also, yeah, it also well, sounds really dangerous. But- <laughs> 
<laughs> Don't look into it. <laughs> Avert your eyes. The beams could compensate for the dip in light in, that the Earth creates when it passes in front of the sun, as viewed from far-off worlds. The laser or array of lasers, however they do it, would essentially replace the amount of light blocked by the Earth when it's in transit across the plane of our sun uh, as the aliens observe us along that plane of sight. Wait, how many lasers would that really take? That's a lot of That's lasers. That's a lot of laser light. A lot of laser Isn't that going to like well, fry all of our... Um all of our satellites? Not if it's, vis- not if it's visible light. Yeah, I guess so. They true. say we estimate that humanity could cloak the Earth from Kepler-like broadband surveys using an optical monochromatic laser array emitting a peak power of roughly 30 megawatts for roughly 10 hours per year. That's all. <laughs> a chromatic cloak effective at all wavelengths is more challenging, requiring a large array of tunable lasers with a total power of roughly 250 megawatts. Alternatively, a civilization could cloak only the atmospheric signatures associated with biological activity on their world, such as oxygen, which is achievable with a peak laser power of just roughly 160 kilowatts per transit. Yeah, so, per uh, transit. So that those figures only apply to one star. Right. Right? If, you, if you're trying to hide us from aliens everywhere, you'd have to do it all the time. Not 10 hours a year, but all hours a year. Right? Yes, that I I would think so. Yeah, I we're always in so. front of the sum from somebody's perspective. From, from somebody's somebody. perspective, <laughs> yeah. exactly. That, that's right. That's right. Along that plane, uh, Professor Kipling told the BBC in the, in an interview that it doesn't have to be one huge laser. It could be an array positioned around the Earth, or you could put it in space as a satellite. And we've calculated the International Space Station already collects exactly the amount of energy we would need. So he thinks it's you know these are achievable uh, numbers effectively. And it's all well and good as a thought experiment, but it does open the door to a much bigger question, I think, is should we be doing no. this? You know, what's the value of doing None. this? Of should course we hide not. ourselves? No. Also, do we have this much excess energy <laughs> to blow on like space lasers? I'm looking oh, at this from question. a practical standpoint. Like we're having a mm-hmm. hard time utilizing, you know, trying to create enough energy cleanly in order to do all of the things that we need to do to survive. And is there a legitimate fear that if aliens found us, they would come murder us all? That's just it. That That's uh, there, there. There really is a, def- a fear that it's not going to happen. Mm. I think there are two questions here. One is, would it work? Yeah. Which I think the answer is no. <laughs> I think, the, you know, the bottom line is that any aliens that we would need to worry about are not going to be fooled by our silly little see. laser. Uh, I mean, that's, and isn't it too late, guys? I mean, what would we be blocking from that we haven't already? Well, it might be too, you know? it might be too late. Yeah. We've been broadcasting our existence for a long time, but in lots of ways. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just hoping just, just, that since Hitler was the first broadcast, that that just scares all the aliens oh, yeah. away. <laughs> yeah. <Jeez>. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, I mean, you're talking about blocking aliens from using our current technology to identify the existence of the Earth. Right. But, uh, yeah, you know, if they have our current technology, I'm not worried about them. If, on the other hand, which means they can't get to us, they have super advanced technology, we're not going to fool them with our lasers. Nope. It's just right. not going to happen. Yeah. No. And chances are over, no, overwhelmingly s- high that. That they're hundreds or thousands of light years away. So it would take that long for uh, that light to get there to, to try and trick them. Plus the energy it would take them to get here. Why, why would they even come? Why would they put so much effort into traveling so far? You know, unless they've got something like warp drive or something crazy like that, which doesn't look very good. Yeah. You know, it's, if they want to find us, they're going to find us. If they want to get here, there's nothing we can do about it. Just, you know, and, but the chance of any of that happening, happening is essentially, 
zero anyway, so don't worry about it. So, Bob, you're just going to give up just like that? Well, the probability that we will <laughs> save ourselves by using mm. these lasers, I think, approaches zero. Yeah. But, you know, the other, of course, the, the interesting question is, would aliens be hostile to us and would they bother coming here for some nefarious reason? And, of course, you know, that's pure speculation because we have only – we're the only sentience that we know about. Hawking thinks so, doesn't he? Yeah, which is interesting, it but is weird I think to me. he's an alarmist. It is weird. You think so? Okay. You think that's what it I, is? I mean, they wouldn't need resources, right? Because just volatiles and minerals and stuff, they can, the universe is full of them. They wouldn't need yeah. to come to a planet with life on it to get anything. The only thing that would bring them here is that they're interested in the life that's here and it, and why would they want to destroy it or enslave us or whatever? It doesn't make any sense. Um, unless the only thing that we really would need to worry about is that there's just a homicidal species that we can't even understand the way they think about things, but they would the want board. to, they would want to destroy us for some bizarre reason that, that we can't, but there's no rational reason why they would want to come here. And if they did come here, there's no rational reason why they would want to harm us. What I'm more worried about, which is also probably not that likely but they, it may just be that they will contaminate us with, with their own biology. But chances are the biology won't be compatible. You know, we'd have to really only worry about something like the thing, which again, I don't know how feasible that is. Oh, it's yeah. feasible. Hijacking the biology <laughs> or some sort of, some yeah. sort of alien gray goose scenario that, you know, they could, you know, to terraform the earth in a month to make it habitable for them. But it's, again, that's really not a concern. It should not be a concern. If they could do that, they could terraform Venus. Yeah, cherish you know, the gods, why, man. Why? <laughs> the author of the article, Steve, it's the silliest line in the article. It says uh, they, that there's this fear that if aliens did visit us, they might not be very friendly and could introduce disease. That's ridiculous. I mean, come on. Dog germs can't infect humans. Yeah, I you know? guess that's true. And they are a different species. But there are some zoonotic diseases that are pretty devastating. <laughs> but they wouldn't even have our DNA. I know. <laughs> you know, I think I would. I, we should be advertising our presence to aliens. I think the sure. probability yes, I agree. of that being a benefit is probably orders of magnitude greater than the probability of it being a risk. Right. Because first of all, they probably can't physically get here in any kind of time that we would have to worry about. That'd be nice. But they could be beaming their. In information to us. Galactopedia, baby. <laughs> but I, I will say that, you know, we were talking last week about the using lasers to send little microprobes to other solar systems. They could do that. Why? They could send a microprobe yeah, what's the end game to the Earth them? filled with nanites that would turn us into Proof great of concept. Goods. But right. then again, why? <laughs> why would they do that? What would be the benefit right. to them of, right. of doing that? If they did come here, I don't think we'd have to be worried about it. overt animosity more than just kind of like a disregard. Like we would, we would <laughs> yeah. be bacteria essentially to them. Like, oh, look at that. You know, interesting, whatever. Crunch. Whatever. They might have a religion that has some kind of manifest destiny in it that they feel like they need to be the only biology in the universe or oh, something gosh. stupid like that. Yeah, Who don't knows? we have that? I think <laughs> some Damn of right. us have that. <laughs> yeah, but I would think that our, uh, that our like soda and fast yeah. food restaurants would eventually win them over. I think so. That's right. I think so. Use, let's. All right, Jay. Another technology item, computers as artists. Yeah, I will preamble my news item with the following message. Don't be afraid of aliens. Be afraid 
of artificial intelligence because it's going to happen soon on this yeah, planet. You don't have to worry about aliens right? coming to destroy us. We're going to rip our much more ourselves. realistic threat for sure. But I'm I am completely blown away with what I'm about to tell you. Microsoft, ING, and uh, Delft University of Technology and two Dutch art museums collaborated on an 18 month project, and they named it the Next Rembrandt. And their goal was to create software that can create a new piece of art that would look as close to an authentic Rembrandt as possible all the time while it's actually an original portrait, right? You follow that? So in essence- Not really. They, they wanted, How can it be both? I'll tell you. I so they see, wanted right. to they wanted the software to quantify Rembrandt's style and then make a painting that looks as if he painted it, but he didn't. And it's, it is unique- Meaning that yeah, so it's not a copy. Yeah. It's a it's a new piece of art, but it's in the style inspired, of right. gotcha. inspired by right. Rem- gotcha. by Rem- well, better than inspired, Bob. So let let's just check this out. So the team started by having like the software analyze all the existing work, works of Rembrandt art. It's like about three hundred different pieces of art, and they they used it three hundred. They used uh, this high resolution three D scanner that captures the minute details of his work, including brush strokes and depth and pressure and all that stuff. And then they quantify what makes a face look like it was painted by Rembrandt. Now, if you looked at imagery from this, the work that they did, you'll see that they were measuring all the facial distances from each other. So the center of the eye to the tip of the nose, the center of the eye to the outer rim of the eye, the shape of the eye, the shape of the curve of the chin, the cheeks, everything including the colors that, that, that he would typically use, including uh, the different kinds of clothing and all, just all aspects of his work, right? So they fully quantified it, you know, when I say fully, as best as they could do within the funding that they had, but they did quantify it really well. So, you know, just to give you a quick example, they had, they, they had software study how Rembrandt specifically painted the subject's eyes you know, going into every detail and every curve and every nuance of all the eyes. So they can say the aggregate shape of a Rembrandt eye is X, right? You follow that? Mm-hmm. The okay. software used machine learning algorithms, which were then able to create a new portrait, a new portrait that used Rembrandt's unique style, the, the software painted in Rembrandt style. The software was given... Very, you know, really a small amount of direction regarding like the final painting. They just said, hey, we want you to make a Caucasian. This is actually what they said. They told it a Caucasian male with facial hair between 30 and 40 years old, black clothes, white collar facing to the right. Then the software, when the software was finished, they printed the image using Bob. This is so cool. They used a 3D printer to print Rembrandt's brush style. Oh, that's so cool. So they simulated Whoa. his brush stroke style as if his hand was actually moving the paintbrush. They 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 did they got it to that level. The end result is profound. Stop this recording right now. Look up the next Rembrandt in Google right it's, now. It's beautiful. Well, not if you're driving. Right now, <laughs> to do that, I'll count the three. One, two, three. Right okay, now. we're back. It's, you saw it. It's the painting beautiful. looks exactly like it was painted by a Rembrandt. The painting by Rembrandt. Sorry. The painting ended up with over 148 million pixels. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. So think about this. It is Rembrandt's style. It looks like exactly like his work. If you compare, if you look at his other work and then look at the next Rembrandt's painting, it is a Rembrandt, but it, it's unique. It's brand new. It's a brand new Rembrandt. Oh my God. You know how many things that this news item makes me want to talk to you guys about? 
We, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to <laughs> three. Bring, yeah, three. No, I want to bring it down to like the the the, the couple of big oh my God, so philosophical cool. things. Now, first of all, who owns that? Who owns that piece of art? Interesting idea. The I soft, don't even the think software we developers. Should, I don't know, Bob. The scientists. I don't know, man. I just don't know. Like we. I'm sure they wrote it into the. Sure, Jake. What? Yeah. What else? Well, okay. So Rembrandt is long dead. Fine. They, they, yeah, his work is public domain. Okay, now. Basically. Yeah, if it's public domain, it's different. Now, but. let's say um, one of my favorite artists, Michael Whalen, he's alive, still doing his work, still kicking ass. And Michael's, Michael is a painter, by the way. And let's say that this computer very easily, uh, just like with Rembrandt, they do everything that they did, 18 months of work, and they completely steal quote unquote steal, borrow, copy, whatever, Michael Whalen's style. Okay. I I could you have a much stronger argument there, Jay, I think. Right, well, let me this f- is a new ethical dilemma. I sure. mean it's something that the people who did the quote unquote hologram of of Machiavelli, right? Of Tupac and yes. the people who, you know, did the recreation of Paul Walker and the recreation of Philip Seymour Hoffman in new films from digital capture of their body struggled with that. And I've interviewed all of those people and they all kind of stand behind the, the side that the estate yes. of the human being owns their likeness yep. and these movie houses have to get their permission in order sure. to air them. Sure. That's a likeness. This is just a style. I know, but yeah. Steve, but Steve, you know, you have this, to, it's, it's, you ha- it's more nuanced. I, it, it is more nuanced. It is more complicated, but I'm looking at it like this. An artist just doesn't clap their hands. I mean, the style is a, a part of them and it's developed. Sure. It's their brand. Yeah. It's really their brand. It's in, their brand. In a lot of yeah. Ways. If, you, if you look at it, right? So, you know, in, in certain things like filmmaking techniques and things like that, it's a little bit more. It's it's more difficult. You yeah. know, but that's a fuzzy. That's a very very fuzzy line because artists are inspired by each other as well. What if an artist, a living artist, painted you know a science fiction painting in the style of Michael Whalen? That somebody looking at it might at first think, "Oh, that looks like a Michael Whalen painting," but it was done by a separate artist who says, "I was just inspired by him. I didn't copy well, it, him or if steal it, anything." They have to from prove him. that it was that w- it was far enough away because I mean, you see that with music all the time. You see yeah. individuals who will use the same line, and they have to go to court over it and figure out is it different enough. It's more complicated. It's it, it, it is, but Steve, being inspired by a style, another you know, another painter. That's one thing, but, but there are so, there are so many dimensions, uh, that, that, that this specific new Rembrandt took. It wasn't just, you know, a loose style. It was, I mean, the paintbrush pressure and all yeah, those this measurements. Is this is, this is this different. This takes it yeah. to such a degree that it's more than just a simple inspiration of one artist to another. So what I'm saying is, yeah, sure, that someone didn't have to read a book and do the things that Michael Whalen does to come up with an incredible idea for a cover. But that's half of what makes him incredible. The other half is the fact that his eyes and hands mm-hmm. can make the art. Okay. And that, that part has been computerized that part has been you know software can do that now i have mixed feelings about that i actually like the fact that computer technology and modern technology is separating the artistic creativity from the technical skill because then it kind of democratizes it you don't have to have the technical skill in order to unleash your artistic creativity i like that but at the same time it then means that the technical skill loses its value but then you could also argue, well, so what? You know, that's that's just a that's always a temporary technological artifact anyway. 
Um, it's like, you know, like photography, the onboard computers are getting so good at like, you know, leveling the light yeah, and, yeah. and everything that, yeah, you could use, pre, you know, presets and let the camera make all the technical decisions and you could focus on the composition of the picture. There's still, we're not at the point yet though. I mean, there's still like, if you're an actual professional photographer and you, you, you'll get better results in manual just because you have so many more, much more control and options, but, but we're getting there. It's not going to, you know, be probably be too long before the presets will be, will be, there'll be so many options that it essentially the technical skill of just taking a technically good photograph will all be automated. And then photographers, you know, anyone could pick up a camera. And then the only real thing they have to worry about is the artistic composition of their photo and not yeah. the technical aspect and, of taking and the photo. Co- and the actual content. I mean, we have to yeah. remember that this faux sure, Rembrandt is, a composite of all of the other Rembrandts. If there were no Rembrandt, there would be no faux Rembrandt. Yeah, it's exactly. impossible to emulate something that doesn't already exist. So right there, I mean, I think the researchers were appropriate in saying that only Rembrandt can do Rembrandt. We're just ripping Rembrandt Right. Off. They, they made a point of that in an <laughs> article. Like, and that was really good. But don't forget, you don't need to take such a deep dive on one person. Why not take your top 10 favorite artists of all time and tweak the software to replicate those aspects that you really love? Then you would have something... Wouldn't it be weird? It might be amazing. Or it might be hideous. It's, well, I mean, yeah, you would certainly need to do. You would certainly, certainly yeah. need to do some tweaking, of course. But I think you could make an, an artist software that is not really derivative too much, and it would be a, a much more unique creation. Maybe something that no one's ever seen, or it's ten times more derivative. Uh, well, not. A, uh. I mean, not if you take the, if you take the brushstroke of one guy and the paint selection of another guy. If you, if you kind of take all these bits and pieces that you like, then I mean, then you could say it's much. It's more of an inspiration, you know, of many different painters. You can't say, oh, you're ripping off this one guy. No, you're not because it's so many artists that it's not really a ripoff. It's something that you put together yourself. Well, and the funny thing is that any art historians who are listening to us arguing about this right now are probably kind of laughing because, of course, they know that. The idea of emulating high art is not new. The fact is we're better at it now. The fact is that we have these yeah. new tools to do it. But it's been happening throughout human you know, existence. As long as there was art, sure. there were people the first ripping came, that art the off. First oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a thing that exists. That handprint. That's my handprint. <laughs> yeah, but guys, <laughs> I'm just talking about really high-quality computer knockoffs is what we're talking about. I, I love this idea. I like the idea of being able to to think up a painting, compose it, lay it out all by myself and then I could just have software created for me in, with a skill that I could never in a million years ever attain. We'll even get to the we'll even get to the point where you're just directing the computer to do the creative aspect of it. You're saying, give me something that's jaunty and um Oh do yeah, this I mean we already have programs that do that too. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. It's kind of like, okay, let's lay down a baseline, you pick a pre selected baseline and then you're like, move it this way, move it God, that way. I'm so way. conflicted guys because there there is <laughs> something yeah, this Mozart's, Mozart's rolling over in his it's, puppet. It is amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. The, the ability for humans to express themselves is just going to explode over the next 50 years. But there is something special to me about any any skill. But if we're talking about music and, and, and art, fine art, there is something amazingly romantic and emotional about a person dedicating – an amazing amount of time, a huge amount of their life, a daily, you know, daily grind to get to these levels that most people can't and won't get to, and then produce something profound. You know, I've stood in front of some incredible paintings in my life, and you know, really tried to soak in 
I'm not just looking oh, yeah. at like somebody slapping something together on their computer. You're looking at the aggregate of tens of thousands of hour, you know man hours of practice and heartache and all. There's just something so epically human about it. And yeah. I'd hate to see that go away. The thing that scares me is I don't want a young budding artist well. never to become the next Rembrandt or Michael Whalen because the computers are kicking their asses. It just sucks. It does. It sucks. I don't know that that would necessarily dissuade young minds from pursuing those sorts of arts. Jay, I think you can have both. Can't they both exist at the same time? Does you have, it's not like one's totally replacing the other. I don't other. know. I just think, but Evan. It's just a think, new, new and different way of It expression. could be a net benefit in that you're going to get back to you're lowering the technical bar for of entry uh, so that you can focus on the artistic content and the technical aspects will be handled for you. So yes, something is lost. I get that. But I think that a lot more might be gained in terms of un- unleashing creativity. That's happened throughout history too. Don't you think that's happened throughout history? That like yeah. early on, artists could were the only the people who could afford to be artists. They were the only the people who had the right training to be artists. There were l- way less people. in the, When we think about when the fine art, the historical fine art that we point to was king – there were physically way less people. There was less competition. Sure. There wasn't as much technology. And as there become more people, and as we have more technology, democratization happens naturally. Well, it's pretty profound now. You know, it's gotten to the yeah, point. Yeah, it's a more profound example of that issue. Unbelievably interesting news item. A, a huge um just win for software, you know, just an amazing feat that they achieved here. Also, something to discuss. You know, there's some uh, – we have to discuss the ramifications and the the, philos- the philosophical meaning of this more. I, I think we're going to see a lot of things like this happening. And um, this is really the first one that blew me away. I'm totally blown away by how cool that painting is. All right, Jay. It's time for Who's That Noisy? Last week, I played this sound. Any guesses? No. Mm. A, a gerbil on crack. <laughs> Sounds like a Disney alien. Would you believe that is beatboxing? No. Whoa. Yep, that's a that's, that's a, a human noise. voice. That's, that's a human voice. Somebody made that noise. Well, it's their maybe not a voice, but they made that noise with their mouth. Yeah. Um, I believe that. Yeah, they were imitating the uh, the Sega the Sega noise. There's a, a Sega noise that is similar to that. Um, and uh, I'm a big fan of beatboxing. I think it's really cool. I, I don't know if you guys have ever heard any like people that do it extraordinarily well. Oh yeah, um, man, it's it, intense. It is intense. It's pretty amazing what the uh, the human throat and vocal cords and mouth and lips and everything can do. Mm-hmm. All the things that you can simulate. There's this one guy that's so good. He somehow made it sound like what like a rave sounds like when you're standing outside of a rave. <laughs> Like you're online waiting to get into like this nightclub with the the boof boof like going on inside, but you can see it sounds like you're outside. It's so cool. I just I love that kind That's of crazy. stuff. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I had some funny guesses. So uh all right. This is uh like I said, that was a person beatboxing the Sega noise, right? So keep that in mind as I as I read a couple of these. So one guy said, um, that's a cassette tape being played as it is advanced or rewound at high speed. That was uh, okay. David Chapman. I got a couple of um, things about birds flying into fans and whatnot. <laughs> oh, which, that's sad. Was it? Yeah. <laughs> Somebody said that uh, it was a tribble sliding down a slip, slippy slide or something. <laughs> was, anyway, um, nobody guessed it. 
not one person guessed last week. I, I, I don't know. I think I, I made it too hard. But um, How many guesses did you get, Jay? I get a varying degree depending on the week. This week, I think I got about 30. How nice. Yeah, but I've gotten hundreds. Oh, the Tron shit. One, the, Tron, the Tron cycle one. I still get them. I still get people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not awesome. kidding. I do. And people are like, people just send it in, even if it's like a month or two late. They don't care. They just want to send it in, like to formally issue a guess. So when they hear the next episode, they could say, "I knew it." You know what I mean? They want to register their guess. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun too because I do get into some email conversations with people. Like people send me in noisies, and um, I, we usually chit chat a little bit if I use it. And just weird things. Like sometimes I'll respond to someone's crazy guess or whatever. It's fun. I got good conversations out of that. Um, So the new noisy this week, uh, this was sent in by a listener named William Kretz. I'm going to let you guys listen to it and then I will gauge whether or not I need to give any hints. But here it is. Okay, that is this week's Who's That Noisy? So are you guys An out-of-tune like piano. You need, um, <laughs> do you need a hint? Well, could we just say that saying it's a piano is not sufficient, right? Yeah, I was like, that's an out-of-tune piano, but I guess that's it, not enough. It's somebody, yeah, no, <laughs> there is an underlying thing to, to this, okay? So it's obviously more complicated than a person playing the piano. There is something particular about this. You know what I'm going to say, people. I need your help. Send me in cool noises that you've heard, anything. I would love to uh, to hear what you've found. And send your guesses to WTN at theskepticsguide.org. Stephen Novella. Yeah. Something very big is happening very soon. What is it? That is Nexus, the Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism, May 12th to 15th. It is a uh, great conference. It starts on Thursday with a bunch of workshops. Jay and I are doing a workshop on the philosophy of the Jedi and the Prime, the Prime Directive. Directive. Uh, I'm doing a workshop on how to argue, which is something people do every day and don't know how to do. So, and Jay, you're doing a workshop on with uh, Brian Wecht. Yeah, Steve, we're doing a, uh, a workshop called Improv for the Skeptically Minded. It's going to involve a lot of People in the workshop actually getting involved with improv and we're going to talk about public speaking and, and try to help people get over their fear with uh, with comedy. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. We have we don't know how it's going to turn out, but Brian and I just wanted to try something crazy that we think people would really get into. And this this is going to be a cool workshop. Excellent speakers this year to name the couple that I think are just going to blow my mind. Richard Wiseman is coming. Uh, I just can't believe that we got him this year, and, and he's always amazingly brilliant to listen to and comes up with some incredible talks, and he's going to be a keynote for us. Well, Bill Nye's going to be there. Also, M- Michael Mann, Hi Ti Chin, the Psy Babe, Julia Galef, good lineup. The whole science-based medicine crew will be there. Go to nexus.org, N-E-C-S-S dot O-R-G for information. Thanks, Jay. Okay, we got one email this week. This one comes from Bob Loveless in Vancouver. Loveless. Loveless. Well, we got writes, more than one email, right? We just are responding to one. We're talking about <laughs> We've prepped one email. <laughs> that is correct. We're going, to talk, we're going to answer all 50 of our emails in the past week. 
Since listening to your podcast, I have changed my position on GMOs. I was strongly against GMOs until I learned that some anti-GMO groups were using the same tactics as the climate change deniers, i.e. cherry-picking data, putting words into scientists' mouths that they never said, and twisting the facts. That led me to do doing some of my own research on the internet. I still do have some concerns about the chemicals used in conjunction with GMOs, not just their effect on humans, but the effect on wildlife, particularly if the chemicals get into rivers. Yet, I fully appreciate the need for GMOs to help feed the world as the population grows to 9.5 billion by 2050 and increasing areas become difficult to grow crops due to climate change. However, how do you explain this incident? The doctors appear to have been very cautious and used proper procedures to come to their conclusion. And then he gives a link. The link is about a a report in which a a Spanish patient has apparently died due to a uh, anaphylactic allergic reaction to a tomato that contained a genetically modified tomato that contained a fish protein. And he had basically a fish allergy from eating the tomato. And it's being reported as the first documented death due to a GMO. So he says, how do I account for that? Have you guys seen this report? I no. have seen this report, and I've seen the report on Snopes that counters it. Yeah, so yeah, but <laughs> first of all, though, Steve, World News Daily Report? Well, yeah. that is that is the first of all, yeah. So uh, <laughs> yes. absolutely. This is, though, it's good to go through this because, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I saw the article. It's Obviously, it's making the rounds. And it's like, all right, this is what we like to teach people on this show. You see something like that. What process do you go through to say whether or not it is legitimate? Of course, going to Snopes is a good shortcut. Uh, but if you want to just do the evaluation yourself, um, whether it's not on Snopes or you just want to see if it holds up. So question number one is always the source, World News Daily Report. Just type in World News Daily Report. Is it legitimate? Is it real or fake? And it turns out that that source is a quote-unquote satire news outlet. It's not real. Although it's not satire like The Onion. It's more... Yeah, it's not funny. Yeah, it's more fake like the National Enquirer. It's just they make up sensational stories. just made up news for the sensationalism. Maybe they hide behind and, you know, saying, oh, we're not, you know, we're just entertainment. It's not really news. Whatever. It obviously, the whole point is to make That's people horrible. think that it's news. And it, it worked, obviously, in this case. Even if the source in and of itself did not invalidate the report, you can then basically address each of the factual pillars or premises of this report. So one question you could ask is, okay, I heard about the fish tomato, you know, the the tomato with with a fish gene in it. Is that on the market? That's an interesting question. You know, I I happen to know it isn't, but I mean, I looked it up just to see what it turns out, by the way, that there are no genetically modified tomatoes on the market at all. Uh, even though, ironically, the first genetically modified organism approved in the United States was the flavor saver tomato, but it's no longer on the market. Yeah. Why? Well, it wasn't delicious? Well, just think- whatever. Just the po- the popular demand wasn't there. It was yeah, I think fa- it just you know, didn't sell. In the 1990s. Yeah. I think they just yeah. didn't, weren't making money on it. The, the fish tomato, by the way, never existed, meaning that it never existed as an approved genetically modified crop. Uh, it never actually even came to fruition. The idea was to take a gene from the winter flounder. The winter flounder is an Arctic Atlantic fish that is adapted to the cold, and it basically makes its own 
antifreeze, right? It's own cryoprotected. It keeps so they could survive very cold temperatures. Yeah, so the thinking was, okay, we'll uh, take that gene and we'll put it into a strawberry. And then the strawberry will be able to survive a frost, which will, you know, extend the, the growing season and set whatever, R- reduce loss from a, a sudden freeze in April. Uh, so that was the idea, but they, it never came to fruition, as I said, you know, whether in the strawberry or the tomato or whatever. But somebody got their hands on the idea that, that somebody was researching this and that led to the fish tomato meme, which now the anti-GMO people love, even though the thing doesn't exist. Um, so that's kind of hard for somebody to die from something which doesn't exist, right? Really hard. Yeah, really hard. The other thing is that one of the, the clear, clear safety testing that GMOs go through is an evaluation for any known aller- allergens, right? The, there's always the, the fear mongering that maybe they'll contain a new allergen, a previously unknown allergen. Of course, there's no particular reason to think that's the case or that there's any more risk of that from any other source of new cultivars, mutation breeding or forced hybridization or whatever. It's actually lower with GMOs because, again, they we could screen the new cultivar to see if it's producing any proteins that are known to be allergenic. But not only that, not only can they screen for known allergens. They can screen for genetic sequences, for protein sequences that are known to confer allergenicity. For example, proteins that cause allergies have certain things in common. Namely, one thing is that they can survive complete digestion in the stomach. Obviously, if you're breaking down a protein to amino acids, it, you know, it doesn't matter what the protein was. It's just amino acids at that point. It have to enough of it would have to survive intact that it could produce an allergic reaction. And there are protein sequences, amino acid sequences, which protect a protein, allow it to survive stomach acid. So allergenic proteins have those sequences in common. We could screen for those in any new new proteins that would be in a in a genetically modified organism. There's never been a single case of you know somebody dying from an allergy from a GMO. So there was I think you know one case of like a uh, something sort of the Brazil nut protein into a plant and somebody had a, a nut allergy but it was taken off the market. In the United States gets screened out. It's not going to happen. So that didn't seem plausible either. Plus also if you read the report they say that the doctors were able to confirm that the allergic reaction was to the genetically modified tomato, which is interesting because there's no way to do that. There's no, no test you could do that would that would tell you that uh, this dead person's anaphylactic reaction was due to the tomatoes that they ate. You know, just the anaphylactic reaction is the same. You just kind of would assume if they ate something that was high allergen. Like if you had somebody come in and they yeah. were like, I'm allergic to peanuts and they were in al- anaphylaxis, you would yeah. probably just deduct that they ate peanuts. Yeah, but you it doesn't, f- it doesn't matter proof. anyway because yeah. you treat yeah. them the same uh, other than avoiding exposure to the thing that you're allergic to, you know. So, Steve, this is about a product that supposedly killed someone, yet the product does not exist. And even if it did exist, we would never be able to determine that it killed him. Right. <laughs> That's right. what you're saying. Summary. Yeah. Okay. Just so, checking. Er, so everything about this report is wrong. You know, if you go down the list of the factual, you know, elements of this report, every single one doesn't make sense. And then when you you know, you dig deep, you find that it's incorrect. So it's actually not that hard. You could spend, you know, 10 minutes online and completely dissect this story. 
and determine that it's not true. Uh, Bob goes on the email that goes on to talk about David Suzuki. You guys remember we spoke about David Suzuki. So he yeah. came up because uh, we quoted him for the quote of the week and then we got emailed saying, hey, you guys used somebody as for the quote of the week who's actually anti-GMO. So we mentioned that. So now but I don't want to read the whole thing, but Bob basically says David, you know, he's Canadian. You know, Bob is Canadian. David Suzuki is Canadian. They're saying that he's a great science communicator. You know, he was a highly acclaimed uh, television host of The Nature of Things. He's an actual scientist, you know, actually a geneticist. And, you know, he's basically an awesome guy. He said the comments made on the podcast were totally uncalled for and unprofessional. I disagree with that. I think that, you know, you got to take the say? I think just that he was anti-GMO and, you know. We weren't like, what an idiot. Uh, so since getting the email, I'm like, all right, let me take a deeper dive and you know, actually look at some interviews and read some articles that that Suzuki has done on GMOs. And I'm just not impressed. I'm sorry. I'm not impressed with anything that he has to say about it. Mm. You know, by all accounts, he seems to be an excellent science communicator, but he's an environmental activist, an environmentalist. No, you know, nothing wrong with that, but I think, you know, listening to him talk about these environmental issues, it, it seems to me that he's taking a very ideological approach, not a detached scientific approach. When he talks about GMOs, he's really – his only real point, He, as far as I could tell, he has one point, and that is we don't understand enough to to be confident that there aren't unintended consequences from doing this genetic modification. That's a pretty weak point. It's first of all, it's pretty generic. There's, there's no specific reason to really be concerned about genetic modification the way that it's being done. He doesn't really, you can't really argue that it's not being studied adequately. You could always say that there may be unknown risks or unintended consequences and we need to do more safety testing or more. You could always say that about pretty much anything. And, you know, he doesn't he really just didn't do a good job of making that point when he was asked, you know, pointed questions by scientists during interviews. I don't think he handled those questions very well. Again, he reverted to that and he said, the only reason why we're rushing is corporate greed. These companies want to make money. That's why they're doing it. And we're just getting ahead of the science. But he didn't have any real technical points to make about it. Mm. Uh, he just came off to me sounding like an activist, not a scientist or a science communicator. And that happens a lot that, you know, scientists or science communicators sort of mix their own personal ideology or their own activism into their science communication. That's fine. But when you do that, you got to own that, you know, and I think that he's wrong on the issue of, of GMO technology. And I'm, I'm just not impressed at all with his position or the way he defends it or the way he communicates it. I think then he is ceasing to be a science communicator and he's just being an ideological activist. And I'm sorry, but you know, we call it the way we see it. It's not an insult to, ca to Canada or Canadians or it could, he could still be excellent in everything else that he does. But you know, you got to take the good and the bad with people. What can I tell you? Okay. Let's move on to science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have no theme or anything this week, just three interesting news items. Are you all ready? Here we go. 
Item number one, new research finds that bed bugs have evolved a thicker cuticle or exoskeleton, which allows them to survive temperatures up to 210 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 99 degrees Celsius. Uh, Item number two, programmers have created an algorithm that can uniquely identify a user from anonymized data if they have made a single geotagged post on two apps. Hmm. And item number three. Scientists discover that bear cats smell like buttered popcorn because they excrete the identical molecule creating that odor in their urine. Evan, go first. Bad bugs. Yum. Delicious. Um, <laughs> evolved a thicker cuticle exoskeleton, allowing them to survive temperatures up to 210 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, I'm not, uh, I guess I don't find that very surprising, these little Critters are really resilient, aren't they? Thicker than what? I mean, how this reads is a little weird. Bed bugs have evolved a thicker cuticle compared to uh, other bugs, I suppose. No, what are we no, no. I'll, I'll, I will clarify that. So compared to previous bed bugs. In other words, bed bugs, their cuticles have been getting thicker. I see. Yeah, I see. so they've been developing increasing resistance to high temperatures. Uh, the next one about the... Uh, algorithm uniquely identifying a user from anonymized data. Uh, they made a single geotagged post on two apps. Hmm. That's, uh, that's a interesting way of identifying people with very limited information. A single geotagged post on two, I imagine, different apps. Hmm. That might be a little bit, uh, tricky to do. I don't know if that's enough information, but that's obviously the key to that one. The last one. Bear cats smell like buttered popcorn <laughs> because they excrete the identical molecule. Boy, that one sounds like the most fiction to me. And when I start thinking that way, I usually disappoint myself in finding out that it ends up being science. Um, uh, so therefore, I am going to go back to... I'll, I'll say the uh, geotag post one with the two apps. I, that's not enough inf- information to uniquely identify the user. Boy, I could find... There got to be ways to trick that to and a lot of false positives there maybe and I think uh yeah I don't I don't think that one holds up so I'll say the geotag post on two apps one is fiction. Okay, Bob. Uh okay, I'll start with uh the last one uh, with the bear cats. Um uh, yeah, I mean I don't have too much of a problem with that. I mean, who knows what's going on uh with the urine of bear cats. I've often been at movies where I kind of uh you know, felt like drinking bear cat piss instead of eating <laughs> sure. popcorn. So um so that's got to mean something. All right. Uh the uh, the algorithms with the geotagged. Yeah, I think uh don't know precisely how this works, but I think the fact that it's two apps is important. Um if it was just one, I might not necessarily agree, but I think the fact that two different apps are involved, I think that kind of kind of sways that to the end of possibility. Uh it's the first one that I've got a problem with the, the thicker cuticle. I mean 210 degrees Fahrenheit. 99 degrees Celsius, that, that's just, that's crazy. Um, I mean, I know there's some hardy buggers out there. Um, but I think, I think that's, yeah, I think that's just, um, just a little bit too intense, uh, for those, for those guys. So I'm going to say the bed bugs is fiction. Okay. Jay. Yeah. The bed bugs one seems like that, that if that happened, it happened very quickly. And if anything, I, I don't see a reason why they would have um, evolved a thicker exoskeleton because they're, they're doing quite well with the one that they have today. So I'm 
not agreeing, and I think that one is very likely the fiction, but to go down the list, um, that one about geotagging, you know, identifying someone from geotagging them in two apps, I think Bob is right that if it's two different apps, that that's part of the information. Um, and then, you know, knowing your location. Now, I think the obvious thing is, yeah, if they geotag you at two in the morning, you're home. You know what I mean? So they can find out who you are that way, um, which seems crazy <laughs> obvious. But I am not ever going to uh, deny how dangerous and powerful big data is. So I think that, yes, um, that one is, is probably science. And this last one about the bear cat smelling like buttered popcorn, like, wow, that's kind of weird, right? But um, how cool is that? If I don't know. How big are bear cats, Bob? Do you know? No idea. Well, they're, if they're like – if they're small enough to be in the house, they're the ultimate pet because that's pretty cool. Um, I don't see why not. I you know Maybe it doesn't sn- smell exactly like – Buttered popcorn, but kind of similar to it, maybe when they get wet. Anyway, I'm going to say that the bedbugs one is the fiction. Okay, and Kara? Well, bear cat smelling like buttered popcorn is almost too good to be true, but I want it to be true. Um, so I'm going to say that bear cats do smell like buttered popcorn. And I don't know, usually what you smell in a wild animal is their piss. So <laughs> I'm going to say that that one is science. Scientists creating an algorithm that can identify a user, even from anonymous data, single geotag post from two different apps. I think that might be enough information because there's metadata that comes along with those posts. Like, And the fact that it's specifying that it has to be a geotagged is more than just two random posts, which I think they're probably close to being able to identify who you are just from two random posts. But having them be geotagged, too, gives it that depth of kind of triangulating where you are in the world. So I don't know. That one screams science to me, too, which is making me nervous because the whole surviving high temperatures with bedbugs, there is truth to the fact that bedbugs do survive high temperatures. I know this because I paid quite a bit of money to have all of my stuff put into a giant oven so as to kill the bedbugs inside of it. I think what's catching me on this one is the that they evolved the ability to survive higher temperatures. I think that's how, if I'm reading it right, that they evolved a thicker cuticle or exoskeleton to allow them to survive higher temperatures. But we're not talking about normal exterior temperature ranges. If that were the case, I would say, yeah, climate change could be, you know, inducing some sort of pressure and they could be evolving to keep up with climate change. But 210 degrees Fahrenheit is so hot. Where are they going to have that sort of environmental selective pressure? pressure? Where's yeah, that exactly. selective pressure? Yeah. So that, that's the thing that sticks out to me. So I'm going to GWB and GWJ on this one. And sorry, Evan. <laughs> Evans left out in the cold. But you all agree on number three, so we'll start there. Scientists discover that bear cats smell like buttered popcorn because they excrete the identical molecule creating that odor in their urine. You all think this one is science, and this one is science. Yeah, baby. Yay. I'm Googling bear cat right now because I don't know what they look yeah, like. Yeah, they're cute. They're they're cute little mammals. They're part of the uh, civet family. Oh, so they're not bears and they're not they're cats. They're not cats. They are not bears. <laughs> Steve, are they marsupials? They're not marsupials, no. They're civets, they're, like um, pan- like red pandas. Exactly. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're not part of the marsupial family? They're not, no. <laughs> they're not part of the marsupial yeah. clade. Uh, no. uh, Metatheria, which is an infraclass. An infraclass. That's yeah, right. Super of order infraclass. That's right. Of course. Yeah. So and these are not that. Right. They are not that. Okay. Anyway, 
Uh, they are. They are. They are. They are. They are. They are. They're mainly in Asia, South Southeast Asia. Uh, they're pretty cute. They're all dark. They have black eyes, dark skin. Aww. They're shy. They're, they they're shy. Uh, <laughs> but they um, they can be vicious too, which is why there's a couple of sports teams named after the Bearcats. Bearcats is kind of the English name for them. They're actually called Binturongs. B i n t u r o n g s. Binturong. Yeah, Binturong. Uh, and they do smell like buttered popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. Do people keep them as pets? No, they're, I don't think they're uh. domesticated. But and they, it's identical because they give off that molecule. It's the same molecule. Now, I don't know about you, but that smell makes me want to vomit. Uh, what, buttered popcorn? <laughs> buttered popcorn. You the are an anomaly. Artificial so bearcats. The artificial <laughs> butter flavor, I can't stand it. That's vomit inducing. What the hell? That's interesting. Man. Yeah, that's definitely no. well, that you're t- yeah, a rare breed. Super Most people, oh, it's that horrible. induces horrible, a horrible. hunger, like an immediate hunger response in them. Not, not even, for me, it's not even hunger. It, Steve's <laughs> a super taster, by the way. I am too. It's not a hunger for me. For me, it's it's movie nostalgia. It's, yeah, it, it means it equals movies to me. For me, it's it's Parmesan cheese. I like how it tastes. I hate how it smells. Oh, there's lots of things like that for me, like pickles. Pickles are disgusting until you eat one. Like the idea when you open a jar of pickles, you're like, ugh, gross. Put it in my mouth right away, so I want to keep eating because you don't want to <laughs> eat it before you take a bite because it smells so bad. Yeah, you're smelling things that most people aren't smelling. So let's go to number one. New research finds that bed bugs have evolved a thicker cuticle <gasps> or exoskeleton, which allows them to survive temperatures up to 210 degrees Fahrenheit or 99 degrees Celsius. Bob, Jay, and Kara think this one is the fiction. Evan thinks this one is science. So I will say, though, that you made an adaptationalist argument that they evolved a thicker cuticle so that they will survive higher temperatures. But I didn't say that. I just said it allows them to survive higher temperatures. Yeah, that's true. It's a random mutation. Not that that was the selective pressure. It doesn't have to have been Uh. the selective pressure. But this one is the fiction. Well, first, Steve, (laughs) what? Yeah, but. But Steve, actually, I, Kara, yeah. and maybe perhaps even Jay, they, their their take on the their take on your statement was a was seemed to be that it was a it was a recent evolution uh, evolutionary adaptation. Uh, I didn't necessarily agree with that, but I didn't uh, say but that. Yeah, either. but isn't that what you said? I thought you I thought you kind of agreed with. I that, didn't that, give that any it, time. You frame. meant recent. Oh, you're right. Recent. There's no time. Okay. It's just now versus then, yeah. whatever then was. But it, but this is based on a real news story. Bed bugs have been evolving a thicker cuticle uh, over just the last century or so, but not as a defense against higher temperature, as a defense against pesticides. The dark arts. Whoa. No nope. pesticides. pesticides. <laughs> the dark arts. Pesticides. They are. This is part a part of why they are increasingly resistant to things like DDT and other pesticides. Their thicker cuticle just keeps it out. It doesn't get Gross. absorbed. No. Yeah. It may. They, it may not be the only way. They also. Uh, there's evidence to suggest that they can break down toxic chemicals better, including pest, insecticides, pesticides. So, it may just be part of their resistance. But the yeah, pesticides are creating a selective pressure, which are causing bed bugs to evolve a thicker cuticle. And by the way, the temperature that will kill a bed bug is 113 degrees Fahrenheit. That's all? Yeah, that's it. 108. Oh, so maybe they didn't put my stuff in a 600 degree Light your mattress on fire. You're good. Uh, 
118 degrees will give you 100% kill rate in 20 minutes. Oh, oh so great. it still has to be extended. 20 minutes. 90 minutes at 113, 20 minutes at 118. And you also you need 118 to kill the eggs. So 118 is basically the temperature that you need. <laughs> Fried eggs. For 100% mortality. We'll get them in the end. Yeah. Gross. Well, buggers. Which is hot. That's like it's like Las Vegas hot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, remember that? Oh, man, when we were out there. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> All right. Let's go on to number two. Programmers have created an algorithm that can uniquely identify a user from anonymized data if they have made a single geotagged post on two apps. And, of course, that one is science. Uh, yeah, this is even anonymized data. So it's stripped of anything that could identify the person. However, what uh, scientists are finding, programmers who are, have access to big data, is that where you move – where you are, your location over time is like a signature. It really is, you know, identifies you as an individual. And you really just need two data points, two geotagged posts. And then you can, people, the algorithm will find all of your linked accounts from that. And, and from that, we'll be able to identify who you are and everything about you. And then there are other algorithms that can even use that information about where you move to infer your age, race, whether or not you have children, your socioeconomic status, all kinds of interesting things that marketers would be – would love to know. But, you know, it's crazy, Steve, right? It's crazy. It's not like 50. It's two. Two. Two posts. Oh, <laughs> and they, it's a, what, how much they could know about you is incredible. But the key thing here is that it is where you are moving in space is a signature by which you could be identified and can also track you across all your apps that, that use geotagging, which a lot of apps do because it provides useful services. You know, if you, if your iPhone knows where you are, you know, how many times do you load an app that says, this app would like to know, would like to activate GPS so that it could know where you are in order to whatever. And you say, yeah, sure, whatever. You, you allow it to do that. So the authors were saying that, uh, anonymizing data, stripping data of, uh, identifying information just doesn't work. It's not the way to protect your privacy. We have to control who gets access to this data. Uh, we have to secure the, the big data itself. And not be reassured by the fact that it's been stripped of identifying information. It doesn't matter anymore. It can't be stripped because thing, incidental things like your location are enough to identify you. You know, computer algorithms are just too strong. Yeah, it is. I mean, you think about it. I mean, it's like we've been talking about this for years about the loss of privacy due to the intrusion of technology into everyday life, which we are inviting in ourselves. You know, it's our, it's, these are our applications, our devices, our phones, et cetera. I can't help myself. I know. It's because the, the services are, are so useful. I mean, what are you going to not going to have a phone? You know, you're not going to walk around with a phone on you everywhere. Of course not. You have to have a phone. But so, yeah, yeah we really have to think very carefully. There's a trade off, but you know, if you want to protect your privacy, we have to think very carefully about who gets access to this data. And that really may be where we need to focus our attention on protecting that data uh, rather than, you know, having this delusion that, that you're anonymous. No, you're not. An, if your data is out there, you're not anonymous. That's the bottom line. All right, Evan, give us the quote for the week. Okay, here we go. I mean, you could claim that anything is real if the only basis for believing in it is that nobody's proved it doesn't exist. J.K. Rowling. Yes, Harry Potter. Oh, wow, that's cool. Famous yeah. author of the Harry Potter series. Harry Potter, sir. 
Thank you. Harry <laughs> Potter. Harry. That's a good, that is a good so, quote. I like that. That's like quote. the, there are no, uh, I can't prove that there are no unicorns in Ecuador. Who says that? Isn't that Randy that says that? I'm sure. Something like that. It's the same thing, Perhaps. right? Yeah. Like, just because I can't prove that there are no unicorns in Ecuador doesn't mean that there are no, you know, that there aren't no unicorns in Ecuador. Yeah, it's, it's Russell's teapot is the philosophical argument of you can't ah. prove there isn't a teapot in orbit between Earth and Mars. Doesn't mean there is one, you know, yeah. but you can't right. prove that there isn't one. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's not, exactly. not sufficient. All right. Thank Alrighty. you, Evan. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Thank you, Steve. Sure, Steve. Doctor. Thanks, Steve. Doctor. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.